Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. faith and reason to ordinary experience by steel manning aspects of Christendom. Today we will be discussing the historical Jesus, and joining me today is my good friend Ian. Well, greetings Nate, greetings listeners, and greetings fellow heretics. I'm looking forward to seeing what you've uncovered. All right, well let's jump right in. So our primary purpose of this episode is to establish that there was a historical Jesus, or at least offer you the evidence for that so that no, you No, what, what do you mean by historical Jesus? Let's, let's define our terms. Like, what do we even mean by historical Jesus? That he was a man who lived and... Uh, okay, so in other words, not a legend. Correct. Okay, gotcha. That's a good distinction. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a term that's sometimes used. I feel like, was it... Wasn't that a term that came out of like the 70s or something like that, the historical Jesus? There's the Jesus Seminar. Right, and I, I think that's associated to that. Yeah, am, am, it's I, historic, am I remembering it's, this correctly? Yeah, with the, what would you call it, with kind of like the field. It's called, you know, looking into the historical Jesus, potentially, trying to find the real historical Jesus. As opposed to? As opposed to the Jesus presented in the Gospels, who is just more of a mythic, you know, character. Okay. So they, so they, when they use the term, they're they're sort of separate, or they're presumably separating out a historical figure, that is to say, a real person that existed in history, as opposed to the figure presented in the Gospels. Yeah, and what they would say is that the Jesus presented in the Gospels is some type of mix of a person who lived, whose name was Jesus of Nazareth, okay, and the the uh, you know theological cultic bent that got put on him over a couple decades after his death. And that's okay. what Jesus has displayed in the Gospels. I gotcha. All right. But in in your case, you are not using the term historical Jesus in the sense of the Jesus Seminar. You are simply using that term to uh, denote a person. An yeah, like person. there is a historical Ian who was born in, <laughs> you know, whatever, yeah. somewhere weird in Ohio in 1980, whatever. Not even historical, unfortunately. He yeah. still exists. Yeah. <laughs> I got to deal with it. Okay, gotcha. So then in the in the context of the conceptual landscape... Previously on X-Men. So we've talked about things like facts and hypotheses and faith. Obviously, la- our last discussion on the existence of God, the, the statement about the existence of God was we took to be one of faith. Um, Putting the idea of Christ into that landscape, or into that construct, rather, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with facts? Are we dealing with hypotheses? Are we dealing with faith? How how would you frame this? It really depends on kind of like your standard of evidence. Okay. You know, I think there's a couple of facts that are pretty widely accepted is there was a man of Jesus, named Jesus of Nazareth, who was from Galilee, who was a Jew, mm-hmm. and, and who lived in, in the early first century Judea, and he was executed by the state. He had a following. He had a popular ministry. Mm-hmm. You know, these are the types of facts that most scholars would acknowledge. Okay. There's so, some who don't. There's some who would say that he didn't live at all. He's a, you know, complete legend. Okay. So 
it sounds like this conversation is being more about, uh, it's going to be far more heavy on facts, maybe a few hypotheses, probably not a lot of faith statements in here. Uh, Not a whole lot. Nope. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Well then let's, so let's start with some of that stuff that you just mentioned. So you're talking about, there are a few basic facts on which scholars agree. And the very first thing you said was that he existed. Well, that's the, that's the conclusion that you're trying to reach here. Why are we to why are we to think that Jesus was a real man? If you read the Gospels, it certainly comes off as legendary, at least certainly in parts. Uh, you know, feeding a bunch of people with just a few few parts, few few pieces of food. So uh, why why should we even think that this guy was real? Why should we think he was real? Well, yeah. Well, the the narratives themselves, the gospel narratives themselves. Um, whether, however much you want to attribute, you know, some kind of later mythic layer on top of, you know, what got presented in the Gospels. What would you mean by mythic layer? So, let's start with the the nativity sequences. You know, in the okay. Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of fan- fantastic things that happen. First of all, the virgin birth. You know, that's kind of outside the realm of um, normal human. Fairly experience. atypical. Yeah, and then you have some of the other things like the wise men and the star. Um, Herod killing all the kids and them fleeing to Egypt, which is some pretty clear symbolic Jewish, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So, so people would say, uh, you know, right off the bat, these stories would seem very, um, like they have that they're not really based in what actually happened. That they're more some type of political polemic or something like that. So when you when you talk about a mythic layer, are you saying that perhaps perhaps the original uh, narratives were laid down and were historical, but then later people came and added a story here and added a story there in order to make a make a point which was beyond which was extra historical. That's what the critics would say. Yeah, okay. that's that's what the skeptics would say. Okay, gotcha. Now, there's also some really good reasons to believe that those stories are that you can harmonize them and that they came from eyewitnesses. So, for for example, like the Gospel of Luke kind of talks about how Mary took, you know, like this, what happened there in Bethlehem, and she treasured those things in her heart. You know, it's a very odd statement if the person writing the book didn't get the information of the story from Mary herself, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. And then, like, once again, going to Luke, the book, he he prefaces the book by saying his, uh, you know, by saying he wrote this from the perspective, you know, with research done with eyewitnesses. Right. Mm -hmm. So... Gotcha. Okay. And so then, so, so, sorry. So then take us back. So why, again, why are we to believe that this guy was real? Now now that we've established what we mean by a mythic overlay. Well, his life happens in real, you know, next to real historical events. So there's, there's certain things that are referenced, you know, in people, real historical people that are referenced and what his story is happening in the real world. So, for example, in, in Matthew, at this beginning of his life, you know, Herod the Great is ruling Judea, you mm-hmm. know, as kind of like a Roman, uh, you know, figure, not figurehead, but, you know, in the, he, he is the representative of the Roman government, and he's ruling over Palestine. Okay. So, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that and he is in this story, and then you have other you know, different data points that why would they be in there if they didn't happen in real life? So, so when so, they go to Bethlehem... So we, we know about this particular Herod. Uh, 
from sources external to oh, the Gospels? Yeah. Okay. So the main, so, so like who, the main source would be like Josephus. Okay. Now, who's Josephus? He was a Jewish, um, I guess, traitor, you would say. So okay. When, would the, would the Jews when say the that? Romans came through, uh, you know, in the year about, I think, like, like 66, 67, the Jew, there was a Jewish revolt. And the Romans came through and destroyed the, you know, rebel Jewish armies and burned down most, you know, Jerusalem and the temple and, and things like that. And Josephus had previously been a Jewish general, and he surrendered his city to the Romans and kind of got buddy-buddy with the emperor and then wrote a history of the Jewish people and of the Jewish wars themselves. So you can't beat him, join him. Yeah, and and he wrote a lot about Herod the Great himself. So, uh, and how do we know this about Josephus? How do we know... About what you just said that he because he, he wrote it about himself. Okay, so he, he just <laughs> straight up admits. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, just... he he wrote a history on the war, and he was a, an actor in the war, and and he obviously writes it to make him look as good as possible. So as good as possible to the Romans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. All right. Got it. Okay. It's, so so that's that's a source of of uh, we'll say a source that corroborates with the Gospels. Then. Yeah. And. Um, the people, like we're saying in Luke, when they say, okay, in, in this year, Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Real person, had a real time. We know when he ruled Syria. Why do we know when he ruled Syria? Oh, archaeology or just record, historical records. I mean, the Romans, we have a lot, you know, we've lost a lot of data from the Roman Empire, but we still have people like Tacitus, who was a Roman historian, and all, all these kind of people who, who will write histories about the emperors and um, who will talk about people in the you know high levels of the government like this guy Quirinius Quirinius <laughs> and then there's archaeology you know so when when a temple gets built or something you know dedicated in the year X when mm, like that's an inscription yeah an inscriptions uh, that kind it. of thing so uh so who's Tac- who's this Tacitus guy he was a, he was a Roman governor and he wrote he was uh, and how do we know he's a governor because he wrote letters to the emperor while he was on his assignment as governor. And okay. And we, we have, like, copies of those? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. And he wrote a lot of other stuff. Um, so. And when, when did when did he live? Was He yeah. lived in the late first century, early second century. So he was a historian okay. and a politician. Okay. And so he knew people like Nero and Claudius and Tiberius. Okay, so. gotcha. Okay, so so it sounds like you're saying we have some some corroborating evidence uh, for with the Gospels that which was written by Tacitus that's that which was written by on Josephus. the on the general historical level yes okay. so we can say okay they're saying that these events happened in early Judea in the early first century and this is the time that Jesus lived in and these are some things that were going on during Jesus's life. Mm-hmm. And then we can tie that to real historical figures who we know from data outside of the gospel narratives. Okay, gotcha. And so you mentioned, so I know we've gone a little bit far afield, but so you mentioned the, the, the original thing that sparked this was you talked about Herod being corroborated in these uh, extra biblical sources. Are there other examples of things that are in the gospels that are corroborated in the extra biblical sources? Yeah, so like Herod's son, for example, like died of disease. So we have like the book of Acts talks about that. When he was eaten by worms? Yes, correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
I always wondered if that was internal. I figured it was. Yeah. But I really like to believe that just the big, like tremors, just came out of the ground. And yeah. <laughs> and the worms just came up and grabbed them. Yep. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there's a lot, there, there's, there's historical records, but we also, the, the ancients used to love to write about, uh, they would tie events to things that happened in astronomy, you know, like eclipses mm-hmm. and, and things like that. Okay. And so the great thing about the, that type of historical data is that we don't have to rely on the person to know when that type of thing happened. If they say, well, you know, he died in this year, three weeks after this lunar eclipse happened in Judea. Well, you can go see where, when did these lunar eclipses happen? And you can kind of tie it to a date and you can corroborate the, the other historical data that they might have given, but might not have been as precise. So you can take all those things and kind of put them together. Okay. And it gives you an idea of when things happened and can also verify that the person relaying the information had reliable data themselves and was accurately um, passing the stuff along. Okay, gotcha. And so then it sounds like what you're saying here is that that which is written in the Gospels is generally corroborated with other sort with other historical sources. Yeah, from from a hist- politi- yeah, historical perspective, yes. Okay, got it. Uh so now so that handles the general stuff. We'll we'll say the setting. If if the if the general historical information in the gospels is corroborated, why can't we just take the gospels as historical fiction the same way you would take um little women as historical fiction or or any any Charles Dickens novel. I mean, like London was a real place, but Oliver Twist presumably was not. Yeah, the the first tell is that the people who wrote it would have appeared to not have intended it as historical fiction. So, for example, we have the preface to Luke where he's, you know, very adamant like I wrote these things down so that you can know what really happened. Mm-hmm. You have other uh opining by an author like John who said, you know, Jesus did so many other great, amazing things. And if, you know, the world probably couldn't contain all the books. If I wrote, if I went and found every single story and wrote it down, it it would just be endless. Mm -hmm. So the people who wrote these books didn't intend them to be fictions or um, embellish, you know, embellishments. So then, okay, so your your claim here is that well if you if you look at what the authors themselves say at least two of them Luke and John I don't recall Matthew or Mark making any sort of claims um, but if you look at what the authors are saying the authors themselves are going look this really happened well you know the back to your thing about Matthew Mark didn't make any claims you know Matthew starts his story out with a genealogy Correct. which was super important in Jewish culture like you don't just make up a genealogy about someone if you're not trying to, you know, make a point. Mm-hmm. You know, and then with Mark... So you're saying that Ma- Matthew himself then was trying to tie Christ to real people. Yeah, he was trying to drive home the point right off the bat. Right. And then with Mark, it's a little bit more subtle, but you have a lot... The way Mark is written, it's a lot more personal and kind of first-person shooter type deal you know, than some of the other synoptic, because it's more of a straight narrative. And then you get weird stuff in Mark, like, oh, you know, the, the story near the end, we'll probably talk about this next time with the resurrection, about 
just the random guy who lost his cloak and ran off naked. Right. You know, like, why would you put a de- some of these types of details in if it wasn't, you know, you're trying to remember your senior year with your buddy? It, it, <laughs> it was important. It was a very important story to these people. And, right. And so it just doesn't read like fiction. Okay. So, so, so then you're saying that, okay, so now, now we've built it. We're, we're slowly building a case here. One is general historical corroboration. The next is the testimony of the authors. And third is the, the way the books are written themselves is that they're, they're written as though they were eyewitness accounts as a, as opposed to, uh, no one, no one who reads uh, Dickens thinks that Dickens is writing a historical tale. Uh, and um, Dickens himself knew that he was not writing a historical tale, that he was, in fact, writing fiction. And I think the other thing that we can get into is kind of like, first, the details about Jesus' life. Who was he? Okay. So, so who was he? Well, he was obviously Jewish, born somewhere around 2, 3, 4 BC, and we can talk about that in a little bit, why we might think we might have a decent idea of the date. Okay. He grew up in Galilee, which was a region of that area, kind of is north of the area where Jerusalem is. It was kind of in a cosmopolitan place. You have a lot of Greek people, you have a lot of Jewish people. It was, it had a you know mishmash of um, cultures kind of meeting there. Now, when you, when you say, so can we find Galilee today? Yeah. Okay. Is this on a map? Yeah. Okay. Just pull pull it up on Google. You can, yes. Okay, got it. Uh, when you say it was a cosmopolitan place, again, I'm guessing that cosmopolitan back then is a little bit different than today. Uh, how big are we talking here? 10,000, 1,000, 100,000, a million? I mean, it was a well-populated place with a couple um, really important cities. So like Herod, the city he ruled from was kind of up in that area. Um, I can't even remember the name of his capital. But so it was, it was a... It, it was a place that, like I said, a lot of cultures met. There was a political centers of power. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have, for the Roman world, it would have been seen as kind of like a, mel- a microcosm of, you know, all the, the best Rome had to offer in terms of, you know, the people who were there and all, all that, that type of thing. Of Rome itself. Because Roman of, culture. Yeah, because yeah. Rome itself was, well, because it was so... Hellenistic culture. Bloody large. Yeah. Yeah, there was all sorts of... And then people the, all throughout the Jewish, it. and people don't understand this, the Jew, the Jewish people were the largest minority in the Roman Empire. Really? So like, if we say, you know, there's like 36 million, 40 million people in the Roman Empire, the Jewish people would have made up about 6 million of those people. Really? Yeah. There were that many Jews? Mm-hmm. I did not realize that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Okay, well then let's... Uh, but before, before, before talking about the date, because I really want to get into the date, date thing... Um, mm-hmm. Why, why would we not? Why are we even believing the gospels in the first place? I mean, again, there, there's a lot of fantastic stuff that goes on in there. Why would we take them seriously as historical documents? Well, first of all, there's a lot of completely normal and and just uh, what's the word benign stuff that goes on. You know, we know that Jesus was a some type of craftsman, carpenter. This gets mentioned, and and like the verse that we know, there's only two verses in all the gospels where his his occupation is mentioned, and they're you know they're kind of the same as in Matthew and Mark, and the Matthew version says, "Isn't this Jesus 
uh, you know, Joseph's, you know, Joseph the carpenter's son. And the, the, I think the passage of Mark says, hey, isn't this Jesus, the mother, you know, son of Mary, the carpenter? And so, you know, it's just, there's these types of details in here um, that you say, well, why are they important to the story? Because Jesus is being presented in the, in the Gospels as a spiritual leader. Why would we... F- why would we learn about his family drama? There's a lot of Jesus family drama in the Gospels related to Jesus and his 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 immediate family, and what's, um, there seems what's to, an example of that? So, like in in John chapter seven, his um, brothers dare him to go up to the go up to the feast, and he tells them, you know, my time's not come. I'm not doing what you tell me to do. And then a couple of days later, he just goes up. And it's it's the kind of story that kind of reads, um, reads like a real story. Like and it just seems kind of strange, and and the brothers don't really show up again in the rest of the Gospel of John. So why is it in there? It, it's just, it's just it, I guess I'm starting to sound a little bit like a broken record, but it just <laughs> it sounds like real history to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. There'd be no good reason to not deny a lot of these things as historical facts. And this is kind of like uh, someone who is definitely not pro-Christian, who's a New Testament scholar, Bart Ehrman. You know, he has a very long list of things that he says, okay, if I re- when I read the Gospels, you know, I, I might not believe in the resurrection. There's a couple of these miracles I don't believe in, but there's a lot of facts that we can pretty um, confidently assume about the historical Jesus that were true. And these are the types of things they are. And, and the reason why is because um, they're corroborated between the stories slightly differently, right? So we have one gospel say, oh, this is Jesus, you know, Jesus, son of Joseph the carpenter, or oh, this is Jesus, son of Mary, and he's a carpenter, and, and other things. So they're not, they're um, the gospels themselves, and I don't know if the gospels are on trial here, they kind of are because they're the primary source. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but, they're the primary source of Christ's life, and so I, I want to make sure that we, we have good reason to take them seriously as, as a source, yeah, and, and let's just go over some of these things that the, the Gospels say about Jesus. Okay. So he was a, from Galilee. He was Jewish. He grew up in a town called Nazareth. Um, he was baptized in the wilderness by a prophet named John. He conducted a, a ministry throughout Galilee, Galilee and the and neighboring regions, not just with the Jewish people. He also went to places like Tyre and Sidon. And that's kind of like we're talking about that cosmopolitan area where he operated. Uh, he taught about something called the kingdom of God. He spoke in parables, which was not completely abnormal. The way Jesus taught and the types of things that he, he, way that he spoke would have not have been foreign to the people of that age. Like, so for example, do, do, do there we might have, be... Yeah, I was going to say, do we have examples of other people doing stuff like that? I don't have any here in my notes off the top of my head, but that's just a way that people kind of argue for its historicity. So like, if you compare it to something like the Book of Mormon... You know, the Book of Mormon sounds like a lot of other 19th century literature, and it's written in the form of the King James Bible, you know? And so people are much less likely to see it as historical. But, like, the things that Jesus did and and the type of people he interacted and the historical events that surrounded it, it fits in the time period that the authors of the Gospels say that Jesus operated in. So your point with the Book of Mormon that I think, if, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that the Book of Mormon... Purported, purportedly, because it's another gospel of Christ, should have, let's see what, should have been reporting on stuff that happened around 
you know, 30 AD or something like that. Yeah. But instead it, it, it's written in such a way that it sounds like it was, it was written in the 1700s. Or yeah. I can't, and, I can't remember. Like to give you one example about the gospels themselves, like yeah. they explain the temple rites in Jerusalem. Yep. And, and that were happening and they explained the sacrifices. Like for example, Jesus' parents gave when they had him consecrated at the temple and, and all this type of stuff. And, you had a group of scholars in the 19th century that said, you know, the Gospels couldn't have been written before 150 AD. It's not possible. Well, yeah, that's you know? another question because earlier you talked about uh, putting a, a more what would you say a moral veneer or a spiritual veneer on top of it, and so that's a question. Is like, well, I mean, easily, all a lot of this legendary stuff could have been. It, this miraculous stuff could have been s- s- sort of slowly added over time, right? And then, you know, after 150 years, 200 years, you write the stories down, and all of a sudden they're quite embellished, almost like rumors happen today. Like, have you ever, have you ever heard a story about yourself, for instance? I know, yeah, the kind of thing that you're talking about. Yep. You know, so I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't that, cra- I wasn't that crazy in college, but. Uh, but I went to a small conservative college, so you know anything outside the norm <laughs> seemed kind of outrageous. Yeah, and I would every now and then I'd hear a story about myself, and it's like that's 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 like seventy percent true, but it's a bit it's a bit over over the top. So why why are we to take this stuff seriously? Why couldn't couldn't isn't the easiest explanation that yeah okay he was a real dude, but you know once you start writing stuff down and you're looking back 150 years, it's hard to sort out the miraculous from the true. That's true. You have to pick which facts you're going to pick that fight with. Right. So okay. you can just say, okay, this miracle that was got written about happened or this type of conversation got, got happened. You're going to say, okay, I have this hypothesis that it is, uh, embellished or it's, uh, apoc- apocalyptic, right? Apocryphal, I mean? Apocryphal, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, not apocalyptic. Yeah, apocryphal. <laughs> so, but you have to have some type of reason to think that. So, for example, the, the age of the, you know, when they think the Gospels got written, even in the secular world, it just keeps getting closer and closer to the beginning. Really? Yeah. For First of all, they keep finding um, uh, manuscripts from the early second century of, like, the Gospel of John, for example. Early and you, and, and okay. you have people like the gospel, you know, a hundred years ago, you find a completely uh, mainstream scholar who could get away with saying the gospel of John wasn't written until 180 or something like that. Well, it kind of sucks because you got stuff, you know, papyrus that might date to 100 mm-hmm. and it's, you know, from the gospel of John. So it kind of sucks to be you. you know? <laughs> now, the other thing Well, fortunately is, for them, they're... Uh... They're long gone. Now, one other, a couple things. And well, what, what, when do we think these are written then? Well, so, so you're, so you you're saying two, these are not written hundreds of years after the fact. These are written relatively close to the time of Christ. Is that your claim? Yeah, within a generation. So, okay. you have, a generation, you mean 20 years? Tw- 30, 40, potentially. Okay. okay. So, you, you have two main streams of thought. You have, did it, were these books written before 70 AD, before that? Before that Jewish revolt happened in the, in the late '60s. Now, why, why do we care about that? Because of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And why is that important? Because Jesus predicted it. Oh, okay. So, and like I said, you have all the contemporary data from the sources themselves that would say, okay, if if you're describing events from the '30s 
then and you're doing it relatively well in, from the historical context, take the, all the miracles out of it and everything else, if you're describing these things properly, then you have to, in some sense, be close to the time. And if you're saying that the, these books were written after the destruction in 70 AD, and they're being written out about events 40 years before, um, the further out you get in time, the harder it is to accurately present that culture because it was completely, not completely destroyed, but it, it was, it was the, the people and the cult and the Jewish culture in Jerusalem was heavily um, disrupted by that first Jewish revolt. Okay, so let me see if I'm getting getting you correctly. I think what you're saying is that um, obviously the further out, the further in time you get away from an event, the harder it is to present accurate, accurately, uh, and that problem is greatly exacerbated if what you're trying to describe is Jewish life in Jerusalem post the destruction of Jerusalem. That, that becomes that that much harder. It would be like trying to say, writing a story about something that happened in Berlin in the 1930s. Mm. Starting writing that in the 1970s. 60s, 70s. Or 60s, yeah, yeah. 60s or 70s. And okay. getting it right, because everything's been bombed out and replaced. Right. So you can't, you can't really go back and check. And so you're really just relying on the people, and a lot of the people are gone too. Right. Now, if it's just much less likely that you'll start writing that book in 1960 than in... 1948, or mm-hmm. even started the, some of the manuscript data coming from 1943, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So with things like the Gospel of Luke, now there's four Gospels. Three of them contain a lot of the same data. So you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John. And there's lots of different theories about which got written first of the synoptics. John is traditionally seen to have been written later. Um, so with the three synoptic gospels, and there's and no there's no way to know for sure. There are awesome theories out there on all sides. The the these people who study this, you spend their life studying this stuff, they make some amazing logical deductions from not a very, you know, if you just look at the gospels themselves, it's not a lot of data. And what they can deduce from it logically and the theories that they can come up with are really interesting. For example, with Luke, we assume that it was written pre seventy. Just because of the fact that it describes events, Luke and Acts are kind of two books, and Acts ends as Paul is going to Rome for trial. And there is potentially evidence that kind of like Luke and Acts were written as kind of like a brief for that trial. So, and it doesn't finish the story, and we have a lot of... So why, why do we think that? Why do we think that? Yeah. Oh, Theophilus, the guy who it was written for, is kind of presented as a very wealthy or powerful person. So it could have been someone who's defending Paul legally, or it could have even potentially been for... Now, it would seem that Philophilus uh, was a believer in Christianity. That's what it would appear to be. But even then, it could either have been, he could have been a lawyer, or it could have even potentially have been for maybe a judge who was dealing with Paul's case. Okay, so we don't, we don't really know who Theophilus is. No. Okay. But, but what you're saying is, Supposing he was a lawyer, then an interpretation would be that, that uh, in, a, in a certain sense, Luke acted as an investigator on his behalf. Correct. To explain what the heck was going on with Paul. And so first he had to figure out what was going on with Christ. And then... Give- and we, we know from other Christian sources that Paul kind of beat the rap on that first trial. 
Oh, we do. Yeah, it's very highly likely. And he went on, you know, extra missionary journeys before he was martyred. So the book of Luke probably could have been written mid early 60s, you know. So uh, you say extra Christian sources. So, like, who and what did they say? Oh, just the Christian tradition. There's a lot of there's a lot of other Christians who wrote who wrote letters and wrote in and wrote books in the you know late first early second century. Okay, and they there is a lot of um, information about people you know outside the Gospels about hey this is what happened to Peter this is what happened to Paul this is you know um, we we the early Christians uh, report that Paul was martyred. Mm-hmm. you know, right outside of Rome. Right. And we actually, they have a church with his grave there. You can go see his bones today. Mm-hmm. And there, I don't have any of that type of data in front of me, but you can, you, this just, um, that tradition, uh, people see as reliable, you know, there's no reason, and it's pretty consistent tradition, there's no reason to necessarily doubt it. Okay, so... so now, there are people who say, well, that's not what the Book of Luke was for, and it was post-70 AD, and they have great theories, you know, but this is just one theory. Okay, gotcha. So then, I, I think tell, tell me if I'm summarizing this correctly, but it's something like, uh, "Hey, looky and stop being so dull." It's not like the only thing that exists here are the gospels. You also have the writings of all these other people, and the gospels, when taken into context with all of these other writings, probably a lot of correspondence. Is that what you're saying? Uh, kind of like the epistles that are in the New Testament. There's a lot of those. Right, okay. That that they, they pretty much cohere. Yeah, in the Christian sources, they might be biased, but they all assume that Jesus was a real person. Um, the, the Romans, that Christianity was a really small movement, and it was a very, very small subset of Judaism for its first 150 years. You know, you, mm-hmm. you don't really start seeing Christianity become, at least in the secular Roman world, as kind of something uh, large or noticeable until the end of the second, early third century. Hmm. So, uh, so there wasn't a lot of people paying attention to it. It would be like, uh, like the kind of analogous thing would be if if, if some random guy here came came to Akron and started a cult, and there was a couple hundred followers, like. Maybe he gets an article in the Beacon Journal once or twice a year. Right. You know, maybe they're like, you know, this uh, lizard alien god is coming back on April 30th or April 1st. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, and you're like, and we're going to go celebrate it in the park. But but CNN's not reporting CNN's on this guy. They don't care. Yeah. None of the, you know, Gordon Wood's not writing about it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> I like, and so it, it, it's, it, and so the, 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 now Josephus does mention Jesus. Okay. One line. You know, it's like, it basically, it's like, you know, and Jesus, this guy who, you know, was the Jewish Messiah, claimed to be king of the Jews, Pontius Pilate executed him. On to the next thing. You know, so <laughs> so he, thing. in his, the first 100 years post uh, Jesus' death, he really wasn't on the radar of mm-hmm. anyone except maybe some powerful Jewish people, and they were dealing with their own problems, because you have to remember, Jews were a really large minority in the in the Roman Empire. But after 70 AD, they're in kind of scramble mode. Sure. And, and you have the be- formation of what becomes rabbinical Judaism, which is kind of like the modern uh, um, religion you, you know, of, of Judaism. And then what happens is there's another Jewish revolt in the year 130, 133, I think. And then they completely just wipe out all the Jews in Jerusalem and say, 
you're not even allowed to walk in the city ever again. Mm-hmm. And so the Jewish people who are interested in, in who are not, who would say, who would be paying attention to the Christians, they're dealing with their own problems. Mm-hmm. And so they're not like, they, they, they don't like Jesus, they don't like this little offshoot of their religion. And it was seen for a while as just an offshoot of it's Judaism. It's just a sect. It's just a sect of Judaism. And there were a lot. And, but to the religious leaders, of the you know the primary uh, streams of Judaism, you know they and may, you know maybe in a, a calmer era they would have been more, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word would be more diligent and would have written more or dialogued more with the Christians, but they had their own problems, <laughs> you know. So we don't get a lot from the Jewish sources either. Gotcha. Okay, so so let me try to summarize that then. That I think what you're saying is, look, Ian, yeah. Christendom's a big deal today, but you got to remember when it started, it was just 12 guys and like all movements, like anything really, anything has to start small. And because it's small, you therefore, it's, you, you therefore don't have a lot of stuff recorded about it in the same way that if you and I, like the example you gave, if you and I started our own religion today, no one would care, uh, you know, except like you said, the, the local paper, the local rag, as it were. Uh, okay, and and but nonetheless, from the places where things are written, Tacitus, Josephus, the writings of other Christians, everything for the most part seems to cohere, uh, and the the uh, the texts. You said that they keep getting pushed further and further back in time, therefore closer to Christ. The, the time that Christ lived, so that it, it does seem like, no, these, these really are historical documents. Um, we'll say, for the time being, we'll say sans the miracles. So at the, ver- at the very least, we can, we, can, we, can take, we can take the ordinary stuff as actually happening, um, and we can debate the miracles, but we can take the ordinary stuff as actually taking place. Is that roughly what you're saying? Yeah, and so, for example, we have, you have good reasons to believe, and this goes back to at the beginning of the episode. You have good reasons to believe that Jesus was born somewhere around, you know, the first couple years, some range between one A.D. and five B.C. You have very good reasons to believe he died in somewhere between thirty thirty five A.D. You have very good reasons to believe that he was a popular prophet minister in Galilee during that time, and you have very good reasons to believe that Pontius Pilate executed him. Gotcha. And so those historical facts are, um, and once again, it goes back to your standard of evidence. We spent most of this episode talking about the veracity of the Gospels, but yeah. But most uh, secular historians would say that those couple facts are spot on. Gotcha. Okay. You you mentioned what Josephus had to say about him. What did Tacitus have to say about so him? So Tacitus wasn't necessarily historical. He Tacitus was a Roman governor, and he was dealing with pesky Christians. <laughs> So, I can't stand him. So he would just complain like you got these <laughs> you got these poor people. <laughs> you got the you know, you got these belligerents mm-hmm. and they're they're they adore this man named Jesus. They adore him so much that they worship him. Mm-hmm. And they're really annoying me. Mm-hmm. And they're creating you know, the Roman uh government really hated any type of uh group, club, any type of other people in society associating with anyone for anyone any common cause like you have records of uh roman like uh 
governors or emperors even saying like, oh, we want to start a, you know, a fire department here in town because, you know, fires were a big problem back then, you know, and and the government officials be like, you're not allowed to have a fire department. You can't have a volunteer fire department because those just turn into political organizations which threaten our power. And so, sorry, you're not allowed. And, and that and that's kind of what happened with Christianity. Uh, so, and the other thing is Christianity, we, the word religion, it's a very interesting word. You know, back in those days, and, and this is true of Judaism too, religion was kind of seen more as, as like your sports team. You know, you're, you're from this city and they have a temple to Zeus. So you, mm-hmm. you worship Zeus. Right. But when you go to Athena city, you go offer you know, sacrifice to Athena. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're, and it was kind of based on race, based on hometown. For example, Judaism was a race-based religion from the perspective of, are, are you Jewish or not? Okay, right, if you're yeah. Jewish, then, then you worship Yahweh. If not, you worship whoever you want. Right. And so what Christianity came in, and in some sense, it is the first modern religion, says, no, you don't, it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from, it's do you assent to these ideas? Mm-hmm. So it was ideological as opposed to racial it was or geographic. Ideological, and that was a huge threat to the government because that could go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, and that could be a huge threat to um, you know just the status quo. Gotcha. Okay. So um, from the stand, is oh, let's finish this off real quick. Is that all Tacitus had to say that he just was irritated by these guys. Well, yeah, I mean, he talked about Jesus in the context of this is their, this is the guy, this was the, the guy that they followed, they worship him as a god. It's okay. very much annoying me. I mean, you could take from Tacitus, if all you had was Tacitus. Yeah, well, you, yeah, that's you, a good point. You would be like, okay, there was a guy named Jesus, Yep. and he started a cult, Okay. and his believers thought he was God. Okay. You, that's what you get from Tacitus. Okay, gotcha. No, no, no other historical details. All right. Good enough. Good enough. Okay. For this, from the standpoint of uh, trying to put this in context, because of course, you know, we're talking about. Obviously, I've been been hammering you on the details of of the gospels and why we should care and whether or not we should believe them and that sort of thing. But let's compare this to say other historical, really anything else in history. So you said the dating of the Gospels keeps getting pushed closer and closer to 0 AD. How does this compare with other historical documents? Like, do we do we have an idea about other events that took place versus, and let's try this again. Do we have an idea about other events that took place in history and the lag between the event and the record of it? So if you're talking about something like Herodotus, like we talk about, you know, the 300, the the, body, the battle of Thermopylae when when the Spartans held off the held off the uh, Persians. When a when a group of svelte yes, Spartans <laughs> with washboard abs held off the uh, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, kind of like the earliest manuscript we have from Herodotus is kind of the, you know, the first Second century AD. Okay. CE. So, and you're talking at that point, um, and, and that's all, they've, they've got some other ones, you know, that, that, and all of the dates on some of the stuff has been getting pushed back because, you know, the more they learn and everything. But whatever happened there with Herodotus, you're talking a lag of at least a couple hundred years between the events when they happened and the most, re- the, like the first physical copy of that document that we have. 
Okay, so so you're saying that we think that the Battle of Thermopylae took place in 200 BC or something like that? It was it was a lot earlier than that. Let me. Oh, it was easier sorry. or not easier uh, earlier than that? Oh, Battle of Thermopylae. Well, I guess when I when I say earlier, it is further back in time. Let's see here. And the year of the Battle of Thermopylae was okay, 480 BC. 480 BC. Okay, so uh, so if the if the battle takes place in 480 BC. Why do we think it takes place at 480 BC? Does Herodotus say this took place 500 years ago? Well, it's the same kind of thing that we're talking about with the Gospels. Okay. So uh, you're looking at historical events, and in the Bible is actually a, a document that they use to help, you know, peg a date to these types of things. Okay. So to this in particular, I mean, I'm or looking these at the Wikipedia article right now. I don't know if 480 BC is the year. But it's probably the year plus or minus five it, or ten years. Oh, well, uh, yeah, of course, all of these things are an estimate. But I guess I'm, I'm trying to think that, okay, well, if Her- either Herodotus did give a date or he didn't give a date. If he didn't give a date, why do we think it took place at well, this particular date? Well, he gave date? dates probably from the perspective of, you know, this guy was ruling in this year, in the, in the year of his reign. Okay. So so it's something similar like at the beginning of, of the Gospels where it says in the reign of type this this guy and... Well, this guy was governor and that sort of thing. Yes, correct. Okay, gotcha. And so you kind of do what? Sub- a fair amount of subtraction and... and uh, it's a lot of counting and arithmetic. In yeah, there. lining up the timelines. and I'm glad someone's passionate. I like math. Yeah. Some of this cr- uh, chronology stuff really blows your mind. It can really make your head hurt. Right. You probably enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> this this sounds like a minimization problem. Because like, I, I, assume, I assume when you're doing this sort of thing that uh, from... from from a single source, you might have a coherent timeline, but when you get multiple sources, the timelines are no longer coherent. So you have to construct the timeline, which sort of minimizes the error across the whole well, sources. It gets more complicated the further back in time. You know, one well, thing course. that people uh, are always trying to do is date the Exodus, the Jewish Exodus. And there are a couple good theories out there, but you're kind of like plus or minus two or three hundred years. And it's like you can't be that far off. Right, right. You right. can't say it's happened in this big of a range. And the further you go back in time, the wider your band of error becomes and the more complicated it gets. Because you might have some really good data here that would point this way. And then, you know, it gets completely thrown off by this set of data. And the historical data and the archaeological data might not match up. And it gets really convoluted really fast. Right. And that's what I'm saying is that you had, but on whatever timeline you land or or you select it has to be one which somehow takes into account all that information and minimizes the error among it i don't know that's just yeah and i'm a data scientist that's how i think about these things minimization of error yes (laughs) okay gotcha so all right so it's i mean all right not that the battle of thermopylae should be the gold standard but it sounds then like the the lag time there for the gospels is like way better than the battle of thermopylae and it's writings in Herodotus. Yeah, and you got to also remember for Herodotus, you know, in that time time frame, does that that's the earliest one, but we only have about 100 surviving manuscripts from Herodotus in the original Greek. Okay. That's not a lot. Um whereas, Well, then how many do we have for the Gospels? So, the Greek manuscripts, and this isn't like full books. This is it's just like, you know, pieces of paper that we've found that have that have the Gospels on them. Sure. You know, in the Greek language, we're we're pushing 6,000. Oh. So, but if you look at the first couple centuries after Jesus died, um, you're, you're talking a lot. Like, if you don't count the Vulgate, you're talking like 
15,000. If you add the, the Latin Vulgate in there, which is, you know, a witness to the Greek. How do so, we go from 6,000 to 15,000? All the other different languages. So 6,000 oh, okay, Greek okay, ones. okay, okay. But then you have, you remember, like, it's not a, it's not everyone spoke Greek or it was the primary language. You have different languages that the New Testament manuscripts were translated into, like Coptic, which was kind of the language in Egypt, you know, and some of those other ones. So, like, for example, they have about, like, a thousand Coptic manuscripts of the Gospels. Not the Gospels, of the New Testament. Okay. So, So, uh, all right, so again, that sounds pretty good compared to Herodotus. Uh, So now, again, though, let's... Let's not necessarily make Herodotus the Greek, the Greek, the gold standard. So uh, let's try this question then. So apparently, there's a lot of manuscripts for for the Gospels for the New Testament. I guess I'm, I'm more concerned about, I guess I'm more concerned about the Gospels just because and, and Acts, I suppose, because that's the history, right? Everything else is uh, well, correspondence. There is there is so the earliest witness to Jesus is actually in the epistles. So First Corinthians really? fifteen when. Uh, Paul talks and kind of gives his first like little creed there. Um, where so, he, what would this be? That First Corinthians is written early fifties, so you're talking less than twenty years after Jesus was executed. Now, why 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 do we think that was written so early? Uh, corroborating with the information from Acts, and it's the okay. same kind of thing. You're saying, okay, we know that this is roughly when Paul got converted, and this is what Paul told us about his story, and then Luke. You know, kind of w- that Luke explains the missionary journeys they go on. You co- can corroborate that with information from the letters that Paul writes, mm-hmm. and you can roughly attach a year to things. Okay, gotcha. All right, and so then, using that method, then you're saying that we have fairly good reason to believe that First Corinthians was were written well, first among all the books in the New Testament? Not all of them. So okay. Galatians might have been earlier. Okay. First Corinthians was one of the earliest. Okay, gotcha. And you're saying there's a there's a witness to Christ in there, so go into that a little bit. What do you mean? Yeah, so the witness to Christ in First Corinthians uh, 15 okay. is, I'll just kind of read, and it's actually a really interesting portion because it's No something, cheating, do it from memory. <laughs> it's, it's one of those interesting passages that people who actually don't believe that Jesus was a real person will also use this passage. And I, I can point out a couple of reasons why here in a second. So this is on the resurrection of Christ. So I'll just kind of read a little bit, and it's just a couple of verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you as of uh, first importance what I also received, that Christ died from our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely, uh, untimely born, he also appeared to me. So that's kind of that that kind of stretch of scripture is kind of the the earlier earliest witnesses we have to Jesus' resurrection, particularly. So it's the early earliest written account of Jesus' resurrection or explanation of it. Okay, gotcha. And so then, in particular, so again, never mind the resurrection for just a moment, but in particular, it's an it's an early document, fifties, saying, yeah, this guy was real. 
Um, because w- whether or not you, whether or not you, uh, mostly believe in the resurrection, whether or not you think that that happened, uh, at the very least, the person of Christ is treated as a real physical being. Correct. Okay, gotcha. So from the standpoint of, of uh, relative, uh, relativity, so again, let's, let's not necessarily make Herodotus the gold standard here. Um, in terms of, let's start, let's start with number of documents. So you said a few hundred for him, for the Gospels, you're in the thousands. And I also have to remind the listener that that's a pretty incredible thing, because the Roman world, Herodotus was a highly celebrated historian. Um, A lot of these people that we're talking about, like Homer's Iliad, also another really famous, popular work, we have a lot more manuscripts from these early Christian texts. They were very, and then we do these kind of modern, or not modern, but more acceptable cultural, secular texts from the Roman world, and that's just interesting. That that is the case because Christianity was a very small movement, and um, to a certain, they were persecuted. You know, they went through times of persecution that were pretty intense, where we know that, but you know, writings got burnt a lot and all that type of stuff. So to have this much survive is actually pretty fascinating it also kind of shows probably the uh kind of how the christian movement was uh, kind of overweighted with literate people and people who were um you know producing these documents was not cheap no so because they didn't have parchment they had palimpsest and stuff yeah. like that i mean to the the Probably modern cost of producing a copy of one of the gospels is in the range of like two thousand ish dollars okay so to like say, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go re- have hire a scribe, buy the ink, get the part, you know, get the vellum or whatever I'm writing this thing on, right? And and I'm gonna have someone copy a copy of Mark. Like it was a really expensive endeavor. Okay, so are is your claim then that when it comes to say relative sizes, no, let's try again, relative document counts, are, are the Gospels at the top? Absolutely, and I that that's not close. Really? Yeah. Who's second place? Well, the Gospels, the New Testament. I don't know about the Gospels themselves, but yeah. Okay, fine. Well, then who's second place to that? It would be Homer. So it'd Okay, be so what's the, what's the relative comparison there? Oh, I think talking? it's... Uh, let's see here. So the the Iliad, that we have about like a little under 2,000 manuscripts. Versus... Versus the 6,000 for the New Testament. Versus 6,000 for the New Testament. And that's Greek, you said. Total right. New Testament is 15,000? Total New Testament's 24,000. 24,000. Okay, so 2,000 versus 24,000. And that's getting into the translations, and that's getting into later manuscripts that they found, you know. So, yeah, but like the... Well, I'm just concerned about the count right now. So in terms of sheer count, you said it's 24 versus 2? Yeah. Okay, so that's an order of magnitude more. Yeah, and you also have to remember Homer, you know, like even if we have manuscripts from before, um, you know, the first century A.D., that's describing events that happened. I think, you know, the Troy got burnt like year 1000, something like that. So it was way after the events, most likely. Okay, well, so. then that, I mean, that, that was my second question. That's a follow up. So, in terms of lag between document and event, you've just made a, you've just made a case with 1 Corinthians that at, at the very least, the attestation of Christ as person is within 20 years. I think is roughly okay. Um, 
in relative terms, where does that line up? So you said Homer versus uh, documents of Homer versus Troy burning. Uh, you said it was one thousand. It, it, it would be like compare. It would be like comparing someone writing a you know finding a document writing about the history of King Arthur today versus someone writing about Bill Clinton. Okay, so again, it sounds like what you're saying here is that in terms of the lag, again, the Gospels are at the top. Correct. Okay, and again, who's second place? Is it the Iliad, or is it something else? In terms of manuscript count? No, no, no. No, we already did manuscript count. I'm saying in terms of the lag between the event described and the dating of the document that describes it. Well, I think... I think Herodotus might actually be the best one. Okay, so he's second place? Yeah. And that but, would be Thermopylae? Or... Well, I mean, he wrote a whole history. I think I, I can't remember how far he wrote into... Um, I don't know if he got... I think he might have gotten to Alexander the Great. I can't remember. Okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a few hundred years. Yeah, a few hundred. It would have been a few hundred years. Okay, so not 20 years. Yeah. Okay. Now, ahead. you also have to understand from our perspective, you know, there could have been, and there obviously was, there was copies of Herodotus floating around in his world very recently after those events. Sure. From our perspective, looking back, we have a harder time knowing exactly what he wrote just because of the time distance and the lack. That's just natural. Well, yeah, of course. But, th- but, but that, 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 that holds true for the Gospels, too. historical value. Sure. And now, in terms of just like, um, just the, the just forget that they're a religious document because all these types of documents um, kind of have that tint. Everyone has a some type of hint or tint or bias when they're writing something. Kind of like even what Caesar's Gaelic Wars or, or Lively's History of Rome, all this type of stuff. Um, you know, those guys had agendas when they wrote. So when you, when you read something like that, you don't think to yourself, oh, this must be a legend or this is just trash because, you know, this guy's trying to pump himself up or pump this certain group up or has this political agenda. You are like, well, these events most likely happened. Maybe they didn't happen exactly the way that this person's portraying them, but they happened. Okay, so so again, let me... We've been, we've been going all over, and I thank you for indulging my every whimsical question that comes to my mind. But I want to try to summarize what I think... We've, we've been talking about. So uh, I suppose the first thing to say is when we're talking about historical Jesus, probably, we, pro- we probably should have started with this. A better question is, never mind historical Jesus, how about history as such? And so in history as such, if you're, if you're trying to investigate it, you don't get to investigate it the same way you investigate something like physics, where you can go and do experiments. You really... You, the, the sense of knowing, that is to say, of, of um, positing tests, you know, to again put it in the language of the conceptual landscape, the, the, of, of positing tests and, you know, seeing whether or not they come out true or not, it's very different in a historical discipline. A few of the things that you might look at are things like document count. Uh, you would look at things like the lag between the the time of the event and the document that describes it. Apparently, Christ, uh, apparently the Gospels and the New Testament come out way on top in both of those. Um, you would, I assume that something that you do when you're looking at things historically is you you're taking a look at all sorts of documents. Of course, they're not going to line up in every minute detail, but uh, that nonetheless, when taken as a whole, sort of like with eyewitness accounts. 
you get you a picture starts to emerge from them. And I think your claim then is that, okay, well, if that's generally how you do it, when you're doing it with the Gospels and you're comparing them to um, extra-biblical sources, where extra-biblical means not only the historians writing at the time, but also the correspondence of Christians at the time, you get a nice coherent picture that, that comes out of it. And so for these reasons, uh, we, accept, we accept the existence of Jesus as a person. Uh, never, you know, again, we'll say sans the miracles for the time being. We get the existence of Jesus as a person as a historical fact as reliable as really any other historical fact, if not more so because, because of the document count and the lag between the event and the document that describes it. Is that a fair summary of a lot of what we've been talking about thus far? Sure, and then I think what we have to bring into this is um, the arguments from the scholars who don't believe Jesus existed at all. Okay, so for instance? So I'll take a couple bullet points from uh, Robert Price, and there's a really good book out there called uh, The Historical Jesus Five Views, and kind of gives five different people's kind of perspective on this, and he's coming from the perspective of Jesus didn't exist at all. And if you read his work, it's it's you know on the it's on the face it's very compelling. You know it's it's kind of one of those deals. These guys are all really smart. You know they they have their beliefs and they make their arguments and they sound really great. It's one of those deals you want to balance them against what the other guy says. A couple of bullet points from his argument is he says if it looks more like a legend than like any verifiable modern experience, what are we to conclude? So you know if it looks more like a legend, must be, you know it must be a legend. Um, he says, if the story of Jesus walking on water bears a strong resemblance to old stories in which like Hermes or Pythagoras or the Buddha or other people walk on water, mustn't we conclude that we are probably dealing with a legend in the case of Jesus too? So that's kind of polemic against maybe the miracles, but he's using it as a polemic against Jesus in the first place. Okay. And then he says... Uh, Wait, real quick. Yeah. Pythagoras walked on water as in Pythagorean theorem? Correct, yes. Who said that? Do we know? I got the link. I'll resend it to you. Okay. Um, And then his other thing is, oh, we don't know. We weren't there. But we could say the same thing about the Hercules myths. Must we gravely admit it entirely likely that the son of Zeus killed the Hydra just because someone said so? Okay, whatever. And then he says, Paul, this is one of his best quotes in uh, in this book from him. Paul seems to know of the Last Supper of Jesus with his disciples at which he instituted the Eucharist, which is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But this is a weak read. He just threw personal opinion out there. Okay. It doesn't sound, it doesn't sound reasonable to me okay. that Paul knew this. Right. Um, so the rebuttal to someone like Price, and this is one that the person was actually rebutting what he said. I mean, it, so- it sounds like he's more hung up on the, on the miracles. No, he's hung up on the... In his argument, and I, like I said, I bullet pointed it, so... Mm-hmm. But I just go, you know, take a time to read that. Um, he he is all for Jesus not being real at all, and and one of his main arguments is against the document. So the you know a couple points in in rebuttal is Price gets Jesus to the vanishing point by the simple expedient of denying all the evidence that makes him visible. <laughs> and so we spent you know an, an hour here talking about can the Gospels be reliable or not? Right. Well, if you don't think they're reliable, then there's no point in having a conversation. Sure. Well, I guess that's my point. That's why I mentioned the miracles. I know you said that he thinks he doesn't exist in the first place, but would he would he still think that he didn't exist if, if you had all of the Gospels and just threw out the miracles? I mean, if you threw out the miracles, you still have a fair amount of 
material there in the Gospels. That is correct. Would 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 he then be more okay with Christ? Do you think? I mean, I, I, have I no know idea. you're. I, I'm asking you to speak for the man. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Okay. Um, there's just a couple other quotes here. Uh, and this is coming from the person rebutting him. It's kind of funny. There is not space in this short response to take up in detail Price's demolition of the evidence concerning Jesus as a historical figure. Partly this is due to the difficulty of demonstrating the presence of an object to someone who insists on whatever you bring forward as evidence cannot count. You know, so... Um, so, and then this is this is another one. They, you know, there's people say there's, uh, you know, analogies between Christ's resurrection and 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 resurrected demigods or gods. Sure. You know, so it's like the dying and rising of gods has nothing to do with the resurrection of Jesus, at least not for Paul. He comes from the basic Pharisaic Judaism to announce that the general resurrection has already begun with that of Jesus. That is why we he can argue in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20 that no Jesus resurrection means no general resurrection. No ge- gen- general resurrection means no Jesus resurrection. They stand or fall together for Paul, and he could never even imagine that resurrection, quote-unquote, is some special privilege for Jesus or the analogy of a dying and rising divinity. So why 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 do they say that? Was is the idea of a general resurrection a Jewish? We're going to talk about this next week. So okay. 1 Corinthians 15 is a really complicated chapter in the Bible, and a lot of the early Christian writers and apologists didn't like it because it uh, supplied some ammo to the the Gnostics um, who didn't believe that Jesus's resurrection was physical. Okay, and we we can talk about that next week. It's it's actually very interesting. Um, so, what was your question again? <laughs> uh, let's see here. What was my question? Um, it escaped me. All right. Well, I'll read one more uh, quote because this talks about. Oh yeah, yeah. My no, my my question was simply, uh, you you were you were reading there that Paul. Paul's coming from a Jewish background, a very Jewish background, mm-hmm. Jew of Jews, as he would even say, and 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 that that sort of informed his idea about resurrection as such. And so my question was: Is prior to Christ was there a general view of resurrection among Jews? Yes. Okay. So Jesus would have been seen. You know, it's kind of funny in the Gospels. You see Jesus con- having a pretty strong conflicting you know, conflict with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a very prominent Jewish sect, and they believed in the general resurrection. So Jesus is basically coming and saying, when when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, you know, we read that verse, and, you know, it's the type of verse we read at funerals, or, you know, we read, read at Easter, and we get really pumped up about it. But it's really a polemic against the Pharisees. You know, part of it is, he's saying, I'm going to go do this thing to Lazarus. Just you watch. And by the way, I'm the resurrection and life. These other guys, they're 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 you know, they're you know blowing in the wind. <laughs> they don't don't trust them, don't follow them. I'm the guy you want to follow. It's it's even more of a stronger statement than the modern reader can understand. Okay, Be- because we don't have that Jewish background. Yeah, like if it would be so like Ben Shapiro would take offense at that. Oh, if Ben <laughs> Shapiro was alive two thousand years yeah. ago, and you know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm sure there's certain things that you could tell a modern. Christian that really, really stick in their craw. Sure, that's the type that Jesus. When Jesus says stuff like that, it was just almost on purpose to stick in the craw. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) okay, okay. Gotcha, gotcha. So, and one other thing, and this is going back to Josephus, and this is in the Price rebuttal. 
You know, the first argument is from a convergence between one late first century text from the Jewish historian uh, Josephus and one early second century text from the Roman historian Tacitus. And by the way, Pierce's comment, let me leapfrog this tiresome debate over whether the testimonium Flavinum, that's the Josephus writing, is authentic, is not an acceptable scholarly comment as far as I'm concerned. So when people look at people like Tacitus and Josephus who do mention Jesus, what they try to say is, oh, some Christian scribe just, you know, kind of wrote that in the margins later. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't, you know, something that Josephus or Tacitus originally wrote, which it, you, the only way you could come up with a hypothesis like that is if you were prejudiced. Right. Well, that, that I mean, again, I, I don't want to be too harsh on Price because I haven't examined his works, but it, it, it's, it sounds like there is... And again, I'm not saying that you should take miracles seriously. Obviously, you and I do. Uh, but that, that the listener who is a skeptic should take miracles seriously outright. But it sounds like, at the same time, you shouldn't necessarily discount them either. But it sounds like that the reason they're discounting the historicity is because they a priori don't like the miracles. They a priori don't like this, uh, the spiritual component of Christ the divine, the, the supposedly divine component of Christ. And so then with the goal in mind, they set out looking for the evidence, if you will. That, that, that's how I'm hearing this yeah, stuff. Yeah, I think it's a little bit bigger than don't like the miracles. It's, it's, you know, people try to put Jesus in a box. They try to say, oh, he was a great teacher. He was a great, you know, he was a great moralist. Right. And if you just read the Gospels, he was a very um, disruptive Mm-hmm. very confrontational person. And it's the type of these scholars who read the New Testament understand that. Mm-hmm. And and if you if you accept it, it goes back to the Lewis thing, liar, lunatic, lord. Yeah. If the 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 scholars who, you know, parse out every letter in the New Testament, they completely fully understand that. Right. You know, your average Joe can be convinced that Jesus was just this nice dude who taught some nice things. Right. Um be nice scholars, to each other. These scholars are, are, are not in any illusions of who Jesus said he was. Right. So, you know, I would say a decent part of their motivation is they just don't want to have to confront the, the, the Jesus of the Gospels. They'd rather confront a different Jesus. And mm-hmm. so it's not about cutting the miracles out as much as saying, like the Gospel of John, and we've talked about this before, Jesus is very confrontational, the Gospel of John. You know, we talk about how John was the disciple, he was the son of thunder. Mm-hmm. And if... if the Gospel of John was written by the Son of Thunder. We, we know that the Gospel of John was written by a follower of Jesus who was named John. It could have been the Apostle John. It could have been the Elder John. That's probably a discussion for another day. But if it was by the Apostle John, and his nickname was Son of Thunder because he was a bombastic dude, yeah. he definitely portrayed his version of Jesus in that book. Mm-hmm. And it's just—it's not a very friendly guy. <laughs> you know, he's calling the—he's the, a nice guy. He's calling the Pharisees the synagogue of Satan. Right. You know, be nice to each other. Yeah, that would get you canceled. <laughs> That'll get you canceled. <laughs> Jesus got his Twitter account suspended. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he probably. I, I actually—I should look that up. I follow Satan on Twitter. Okay. I'm. I'm half convinced the account's run by a Christian. It, all, it, should, it needs to be. That'd all, be great. All it does is just post post uh, biblically tinged memes, but they're 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 quite they're quite clever and humorous. I, I urge all listeners to follow Satan. Okay. On Twitter, anyway. Um, okay, so 
that helps that. So, I mean, at this point, I think that you have made a fairly compelling case that, again, sans miracles, we should take we should take the Gospels seriously as documents telling what happened, that, that this guy Christ lived, that Jesus lived, and that the things that took place in the Gospels pretty much took place. Um, so let's get into some of the details of that. Uh, you know, it's the year of our Lord, 2023. Uh, so why is it 2023? Well, because Jesus was born in 0 AD? Well, there is no such thing as 0 AD. There's 1 AD and there's 1 BC. Oh, that's right. We did all that. I remember that nonsense at the turn of the millennium. No, you got to wait until 2001, and that's yeah. the real turn of the millennium. And those people were nerds. I didn't hear... I didn't hear Prince saying he wants to party like it's 2000. Yeah. <laughs> no, he wants to party like it's 1999. So, nerds aside, so 180, fine. What, he was born in 180? Well, it's, it's actually very interesting. And I think this is a really good example of how our Western culture is very precise. Sure. And the Eastern culture, or even just older culture was not as precise with some of these types of things. Okay. So our current dating system that we kind of split up between BC and AD, and then you got BCE and CE. What I don't understand is why do they call it BCE? Why not just come up with like current age and former age or current epoch, former epoch? You know, these guys just, they want to get rid of the AD, BC. And I go out of my way to not use those terms. Uh, because for for one thing, the arithmetic's the same. Correct. You've got a correlation of one there, pal. <laughs> so so anyway, the, we get our dating system uh, from a really uh, interesting monk whose name was uh, Dionysus, and he lived wait, back wait, in the five hundreds. Wait, like the Dionysus? Like let's. That was let's, his first name. Let me tell you what his full name. Let's was. let's. Well, you know the the adjective Dionysian, right? And the Temple of Dionysus and all yeah. that good stuff. Like, is this the same guy? No, it's not the same guy. Okay. <laughs> he he was a monk and he lived in Rome. Like a Christian monk? Yeah, he's a Christian monk. Okay. So, so definitely not the same guy. The, the Pope basically hired him to build out a new Easter table. Because what happened with, uh, and we were talking about this, I think, before we started the show. Wouldn't you need a carpenter for an Easter table? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> so the the Jesus died over Passover, and he and he was raised again on a Sunday. Now Passover can like start on is a week long of festival. It can start on a Tuesday. It can start on a Saturday. It can start on a Thursday. Um, so it's kind of like our we're like what like Christmas or something like yeah. that. Like Christmas is on the 25th. It's not. A fixed day of the week. Yeah. Okay. So the tough thing was is that the Jewish uh, calendar was a lunar calendar, and they have a 360-day year. So every, like, 13, 14 years... And why, they, do, why do we think that? Why do we think they were on a lunar calendar? Because they were. Just, <laughs> okay. I, I don't know. I, I, okay, so that that's just sort of, like, understood. Yeah. Okay. So what would happen was is uh, Passover couldn't start till the first month of spring. So what you would have happen is when okay. you have a 360 day year, you're obviously going to keep kind of is is that is that uh, I'm sorry I'm trying to remember my Torah was the start of Passover and 
that that was in the spring is that is that in the Torah or had that just become Jewish tradition? I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay. Now what I do know is that the the lunar calendar that they were on in Jesus's time was not the original Jewish calendar. The the Jews had a solar calendar, and the prophet of Daniel actually predicts one of the predictions that they make, kind of like at the time of Alexander the Great, that's in the book of Daniel, is about how the Jewish calendar gets corrupted to a lunar calendar, and that actually happened in history. Really? Well, yeah. how do we know they had a had a solar calendar? Because Daniel said they're going to... Okay. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Fair. Now, we don't know how they originally calculated on that old solar calendar. Right. We don't know how they originally calculated when Passover happened. Okay. We do know the quote-unquote new way. Mm-hmm. And that new way was very convoluted because it had to happen like the first month of spring um, in the month of Nisan or whatever. So real briefly, sorry, I, I just... so. Is it is it one of those things that like it must have taken place in that four hundred year, four hundred year period of silence, that like, uh, so what the what, yeah, the old, the old exactly, test yes. the old testament ends yeah. roughly with the book of Nehemiah, mm-hmm. and then four hundred years no one knows, and then back on the scene. Well, that's a future scene. episode. What you is there four hundred I mean? years of silence? Well, okay, but <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, but it would have been during in, the time of the Hellenization of the of the Jewish culture. Okay, but in Nehemiah, we roughly think they were still doing solar. Yes, correct. Okay, New Testament. Now they're on lunar. Correct. Okay. So you know, every decade or so or whatever, they would have to add a month to the calendar to push it up, so right. they could get Passover to happen in spring, like our leap year. But that was arbitrary. Okay. So the Sanhedrin or whoever, the Jewish, the, the priests would say, okay, this year we're, we're adding a 13th month to the year so that we can get everything back on track. You know what makes me so happy mm-hmm. is is that this is no different than, than daylight savings time. Yeah. <laughs> the government's been mucking about with the calendar since time immemorial. Yeah. And you wonder why I'm an anarchist. <laughs> so the Christians basically said, we're not going to rely on the Jewish authorities to let us know when we're going to practice our Easter. That's that's reasonable. So after so early on in the Christian movement, you had different different churches in different areas. You know, you had the church in Alexandria, church in Rome, church in Antioch, and you had different groups of Christians would celebrate had their own traditions of when they would celebrate Easter. Well, that that as time went on, that got more a little bit locked in, and then the Council of Nicaea they kind of locked in, this is the formula for when we celebrate Easter. And Council of Nicaea is? Like 321. Okay. So 300 years after Jesus died, they finally locked in, this is how we're going to calculate when Easter happened. And that obviously didn't correspond with when the Jewish Passover was, because that was on its own. The, the, the Christians in the Roman world was on a, on a solar calendar. The Jews had their own little lunar calendar going off over there. And so that's what, how Easter and Passover, you know, don't match up very often. Got it. Okay, so okay. they had this issue where they had to get all these calculations locked in and and figure it out and distribute that. So the Pope hired this guy named Dionysus to do that work. So as he was doing that, he started his his tables. The old Easter tables were based on the first year from when the Emperor Diocletian became emperor, which was in 247. Excuse me, 284. And when Di- when uh, Dionysus started doing his work, uh, he was he started doing the work in 525, but the Easter table ended in 531, so he had to create a new one. So he said, okay, we have Diocletian, and we've been measuring the years since it was because the persecution he started against the Christians was so intense mm-hmm. that 
we just mark our year from when he started to reign and started to persecute us. <laughs> okay. So in the year, you know, two, four, so those Easter tables went out 247 years. He's like, okay, I got 247 years from Diocletian, you know, um, and if I add 284 uh, years, that gets us to today, which is the year 531. And I'm calling that, and if I backtrack, then I can say that's, you know, in the year of our Lord, my Easter table is going to start on 532. So I'm basically restarting my starting point for the calendar. So we used to, our year zero on the calendar was when Diocletian became emperor. Now we're going to make it when Jesus Of the, of the Christian born. calendar. Of the Christian calendar. Okay. So year zero on this Easter table used to be when Diocletian was emperor. Okay. Now we're going to make it when Jesus was born. Okay. But, but it gets a little complicated because what he said was, he stated that in the year of this calendar starting, it was the third year of this guy who was the Roman consul. His name was Probus Jr., okay? This, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to keep up. That, uh, Dionysus is doing this in 525? Correct. Okay. Diocletian is emperor. When you say he's emperor, I assume he was emperor for a few years. When he, he first took the throne, as it were, was 284? Correct. Okay. And, okay, now go. <laughs> okay, so in the year 525, this is what Dionysus says. He says, okay, the present year, 525, when I'm doing this work, yep, it's the Council of Probus Jr. Okay. Okay, that was 525, and this is his word, since the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. Thus, Dionysus implied that Jesus' incarnation occurred 525 er years earlier. Now, the problem with this, this is not bad. This actually gets us in the ballpark. There's two major issues here. Okay. What does he mean by the incarnation? And the only person he cites is this councilship of Probus Jr., which in theory, we kind of know when that starts. Mm -hmm. But they measured the years of rulers from the date that this started. So, for example, Diocletian, his reign started on November 20th, 284 AD. Okay. So... Year one of that would have ended in November 20th, 285. So mm -hmm, when you start mm -hmm, saying, mm -hmm. okay, in the year of Ian, the third year of Ian. Uh, right. Well, you need to know what year you, what date, what the day was. It wasn't January 1st. Right. You need, right. need to know, it was it April 19th? Because when you say it's in the third year, what am I tracking back to? Right, right, right. So right. when he did this, he only referenced this Probus Jr. guy. Okay. He didn't make any reference. He didn't tie his dating system to the reign of anyone else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So basically what happens is we have two factors here. You got the incarnation. What does he mean? Does he mean when the angel showed up to Mary? Yeah. Or does he mean when Jesus was born? Right. And then having 525 years and only one data point to match it up to. Now, it's a data point we know. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. But it, it kind of gives you a plus or minus two or three years feel. I gotcha. Okay. So okay. when you go after the real date of the birth of Jesus, and you look at the other early church fathers and when they said, mm -hmm. and you use Dionysus's dating system, yeah, you're looking at between two and three A.D. for the birth of Christ. A, excuse me, B.C. B.C. For the, for the birth of Christ. Okay. Now, what's interesting, now there's another set of data that you can use to corroborate with this. Sorry, let me summarize so far. <laughs> okay, so let's try this. Christian calendar before the first year of Diocletian, not important. For the purposes of... for. The, not important, yeah, because the for, for, the for this purposes of calculating when Easter was. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, Diocletian comes along, mm -hmm. causes no small amount of trouble for the Christians. 
post Diocletian, Christians start dating things in terms of Diocletian. Correct. Okay. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we historians have reason to believe that uh, Diocletian, in today's calendar, his first year was in 284. Correct. Okay. Yeah, we use the same calendar essentially. Why? Yeah. Uh, so, so presumably, then we have in, a historical record of the date that he became the in, ruler. in Diocletian. In Diocletian's time, they're not using the calendar we're using today. Yeah, so, the Julian calendar. Yes, remember we we just did this like three hundred years ago. We matched up the Julian calendar and the in, in the is it the George the Gregorian calendar? Oh, we did. Yeah. So okay. the Roman the Roman Empire. <laughs> we are essentially on the dating system. Not the year number, okay. but the, the calendar. We use the same system. Oh, There's okay. There's a leap okay, year every okay. four years. I gotcha. Year. Well, actually, I think the leap year was the thing they added, but yeah. Okay, okay. I gotcha. I gotcha. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. What what in Diocletian's time, you said the so our calendars are the same, but the years are not. So in Diocletian's time, when Diocletian took the throne... What year would it have been in his mind? Do you so know? It would have been year zero for him, for himself. Well, but, but you would have counted it in the regal years of this person or that person. So, so like King Herod is a great example. Oh, so so you're saying that the way I think what you're saying is so. So let's try this: is the way the Romans kept year counts similar to the way? Uh, the the Israelites counted years during the time of their kings. So you knew that because like a, a lot of those Old Testament chapters are, you know, in the third year of King so-and-so of Judah, while King so you know, in the wife year of King so-and-so of Israel, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, th- okay, so then... For the for the Romans, you basically did a bunch of addition. <laughs> now the other the other way they did it was by the Olympiads. So you know how okay. we have the Olympia, uh, Olympics every four years. Yeah. So they did two back then. Okay. And they used that to date, uh, to say, okay, this person's reign happened in his year started this year, but it's yep. in the hundred eighty fourth Olympiad. Oh, okay. You know, and so they so they had a couple different things, but probably how we would track. You know, they if we if we if we tracked our calendars by who our president were, you know, we could say, you know, in the first term of okay. Trump, they would say, you know, in the 184th Olympiad, and we can tie that to a year really easily. Okay, so would year zero for them be Caesar Augustus? Well, or? so you can see, we we follow the calendar of King Jesus. We only have one king. Right. So we only have one year. Right, sure. Scheme. Yeah. They had lots of different year schemes because you had the year of the governor. Mm. The year of the the year in the year. Okay, let's say the governor and the emperor. Yeah, their reign started in the same year. Mm-hmm. Well, if the gov- if the emperor's reign started in April mm-hmm. and the governor's reign started in September, yeah, there's a gap there. Sure, and you could be in the same calendar year, mm-hmm. but it could be the third year of the governor and the fourth year of the emperor, but you could be in the same calendar year. This must have made contracts just a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> well, but if you, you know, most people didn't go more than 10 miles away from their house. They yeah, really didn't really fair. give a rip who the emperor was that <laughs> week. It really just kind of mattered who, who's who, the mayor, who's who, the governor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That reminds me, one of my favorite Onion articles, because you had the historical Onion, you know, was, uh, it was it was after World War One, and it says, uh, European cartographers commit mass suicide in like <laughs> World War One. <laughs> okay, okay. So this this is helping me now. So 
okay, so again, to summarize, you have within the Roman Empire, you have sort of multiple dating schemes similar to that of Israel in the sense that many things were dated by the rulers and by the Olympiads. And then on top of that, you have post-Diocletian Christians then start using Diocletian as uh, the marker. And then um, uh, 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 Dionysus says, okay, um, I'm going to make Christ's birth the marker. And so when you do all of that arithmetic, when you, when you look at all the historical documents and you look at all the datings and you do the arithmetic, that puts Christ's birth in our calendar, uh, year of our Lord, 2023, <laughs> North America, uh, that puts Christ's birth at uh, 2 or 3 B.C., Correct. So now the modern thing, if you if you watch the History Channel or even a lot of Christian documents have this, they'll say Jesus' birth was from 4 to 6 BC. And the, the way they get there is by the belief that Herod the Great was uh, died in 4 BC. And if Herod the Date Great died in 4 BC, we know the whole story of the wise men and Herod going after Jesus. Jesus and his family moving to Egypt, and then after Herod dying, um, then them coming back. So the theory goes, if Herod died in 4 BC, Jesus would have had at least been born in 6 or 7, you know, for the time for all these events to take place. Now, why do people believe that Herod was born, in, or Herod died in 4 BC? So there's a couple different data points. I'm just going to read a couple of these off to kind of, and I think our discussion in the last 10 minutes will give some context to this. Yeah. So the person who came up with this, this idea was a German Protestant scholar. His name was Emil Schuer, okay? And his, some of the, here's some of the data points. Josephus says that Herod's reign started in the 184th Olympiad, which is 44 to 40 BC, okay? But Josephus also say, says that Herod's reign began, began during Calvinus and Polito's Consult, uh, you know, the consultantship in, in Rome, head of the Senate guys. And that started on October 2nd, 40 BC, which was actually in the 180th Olympiad. So what that means is that pushes up the date for when Herod became ruler, maybe late 40 BC. Okay. People get the math, and we explain why we get to 4 BC a couple, in a couple of details later. Josephus didn't use partial first years when he's doing all these all his um, uh, dating in, in his histories. What, what's a partial first year? So saying that if if you rule from August to January, that's year one. You mean you mean August to December thirty first? That's what I mean. That's okay, exactly. Yeah, yeah August okay. to December thirty first. And then not January year one. one is start of year two. Yeah. Okay. That, he doesn't do that. Okay. But people who make this assumption about Herod make that type of assumption. So, it, it, so it's all it's almost like you have the. In a certain sense, we still retain that convention in our time that I'm currently 42 and I will remain 42 my whole 42nd year mm -hmm. until I turn 43. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So if you do all the convoluted mathematics, <laughs> if you do all the convoluted mathematics, yeah. it, given the way Josephus states things, it can be very, it should be obvious or if you, you know, consistent to say that his first partial year was year. 
39, mm-hmm. but he wouldn't have started, Josephus wouldn't have started his count of years till 38 BC. Okay. 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 So we know Herod reigned 37 years. That would put his death at 1 BC. So now we have two options, 1 BC or 4 BC. Why do we have two options? Because Josephus describes a lunar eclipse happening um, between, that he died between a lunar eclipse and Passover. And the only two years that could have happened is 1 BC and 4 BC. Now, the, the, the eclipse in, in 4 BC was a partial eclipse and it was 29 days before Passover. The eclipse in 1 BC was a full lunar eclipse and it was 89 days before Passover. That 89 days is important, and this is from a contemporary Bible chronologer named Andrew Steinman. He says, all the events that Josephus described um, that Herod did in his last, between that lunar eclipse and him dying, he actually took a couple trips. He kind of did a couple things, you know. And and what this uh, chronologer writes is that all the events that happened between these two, uh, the, the lunar eclipse and that Passover in 1 BC, would have taken a minimum of 41 days had each one of them been taking place as quickly as possible. And a more reasonable estimate is it would have taken 60 to 90 days. And that kind of puts us at the 1 BC, Herod dying at 1 BC. Well, if Herod died at 1 BC, and you have all the church fathers, if you kind of just follow the math saying Jesus was born between 2 and 3 BC, then that matches up really well with Herod trying to kill all the kids, them going to Egypt for some time, him dying in 1 BC, and him coming back. So... Now, like I said, the modern deal will say, hey, you know, Jesus was um, born in four or six, maybe seven, maybe eight, you know, like, who knows, you know, it could have been super late, but it kind of seems like whatever Dionysus, and we kind of showed how we don't know exactly what he wanted one year one to be, because we don't know what he meant by the incarnation. Jesus's birth is pretty darn close to one BC. It's either two or three. And that's, that's um, kind of like one of those likely theories. The only reason you can have conversations like that is because these are tied to real historical events, tied to things that, you know, we heard about or happened. Like, we wouldn't know for sure what year Herod died if we didn't have this type of data from Josephus. And then we can tie that data to what the story of Jesus being born in the the nativity narratives. So, All right, so let me ask you this then. What would you say is a reasonable... What is the length of the interval of time in which Christ was born? Is it a two-year window, a three-year window, a twenty-year window? Um, I think it's it's mostly. Well, I think any really large window would not make sense. Okay. Um, well, I but think, you're you're the one that went through all of this. I, mean, so I think it's it's probably four, a plus, five. It's probably a plus or minus three or four years. Okay, from so, year zero. So they're like a six-year window. Yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Okay, so we're able to pinpoint, we'll, we'll say we're able to reasonably pinpoint uh, the date of Christ's birth within within three years, therefore giving us a six-year window. Is that a fair statement? Yes. Okay. Now, again, in comparison terms, do we know? Do we have an idea about how that level of accuracy compares with uh, the births of other historical figures? Um. I'm not exactly sure. I'm not like an expert on when was Alexander the Great born, when was Caesar born, and that sure. type of deal. I would think it would be comparable, especially for the emperors, you know, because we know right. a lot about the emperors just because that's who got written about and whatnot. Yeah. So I would say it would be comparable. I mean, the uh, we talked about how it's, uh, you know, writing things down was an expensive endeavor and right. it was not done without intentionality. Yep. 
Um, so to say that plus or minus, especially for like uh, uh, for Julius Caesar and stuff like mm-hmm. that, especially mm-hmm. the guys who are contemporaries of Jesus, uh, that that plus or minus three years deal is that's that's kind of right. A- that's average. Okay. You know, and you can even say that the data we have about Jesus, um, kind of like with with Herod's death and and some in some infer- inferences that you can take from like when that census was formed, you know, when that governor was in in Caesar Augustus, um, Quirinius. Yeah, Quirinius. Who, <laughs> apparently, I couldn't think of his name. You know, it's a uh, it's. Uh, comparable to what we would know from the royal figures from that time. Okay, okay. And then I guess the the, the final question I have um, is, we <laughs> we often talk about Christ as being thirty three years of age when he was executed. That he, he, basically the reports you have in the Gospels are birth narrative, twelve years of silence. Goes to the temple with his parents, 18 years of silence, start of ministry, three years of ministry executed by the state. So uh, why do we think that he was 33 when he died? Why do we think he had three years of ministry? Okay, so I will... Let me start. What was the first one? What, okay, so it's, it's two questions. Why do we think he was 33 when he died? Why do we think he had three years of ministry? So the 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 thirty years. So Luke, um, in his his gospel in chapter three, said Jesus was about thirty years of age when he started his ministry. Okay, so that's just straight in the text, then. Yep, that's straight in the text. Okay. Now, in in the three years of ministry, that comes from the Gospel of John. Both of the 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 three synoptic gospels, uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, would appear to have Jesus' ministry taking place over the span of one year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's only one Passover feast. Um, the, that's a big marker. Right. In in the John narrative, there's three different Passover feasts during Jesus's ministry. Okay. So where we get the idea that it was three years is that. Now, the other the other key point there is that um, another one in the in Gospel of John, the Pharisees complained when he calls them the synagogue of Satan. Right. Yeah. They complain like, or and when he tells them that he saw Abraham, mm-hmm. he goes, "You're not even forty years old yet." Right. So we could infer potentially that he was less than 40. Yeah. You know, they were never super precise with age. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So the other thing is that the year that he died, it, the the um, Passover feast started on a Friday, the year Jesus died. Okay. Um, which was going into the um, Sabbath. Mm-hmm. So if you, like I was saying on that lunar calendar, the Passover feast started on the 14th of Nisan. And mm-hmm. just like any calendar, you know, August 14th, for example, can be any day of the week. Sure. Now, the way the Jewish, Jews set up their calendar, it was usually like a Tuesday, Thursday, uh, Saturday, Sunday for start time. So Passover feast started on a Thursday that year or whatever, and I, I believe. I think that's what it was. And then it goes, and actually, I have the calendar. Well, I mean, there, I, but, but isn't the reason that we think he was executed on a Friday was because they didn't want the bodies on the crosses during the sabbath during the sabbath correct which the the jewish sabbath is yeah, sun, so, sundown friday to sundown saturday and so therefore therefore that that puts his execution on a friday which means the start of passover because the the last supper was the night before would have been a thursday so if you just look from the years 26 AD to 36 AD there's uh, only mm-hmm. two um 
there's only two Passover feasts in that span that start on a Friday, and that's okay. AD 30 and AD 33. Okay. So let's say, for example, Jesus was born in 3 BC. Mm-hmm. If he was executed in 30 AD, he's 33. If he's executed yep. in 33, he's 36. Yeah. That's, that's right in the range of what the Gospels are are um, telling us. So that's why... And the, the traditional year is 33 AD, and I'm not, I probably will be by the time we get to the resurrection episode. I'm not fully sure why uh, people pick 33 more than they pick the year 30, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, um, but that's kind of what's going on there. Okay. So gotcha. that's kind of where the, 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 the number 33 comes from is because many people assume he was executed in the year 33 AD. Doesn't mean he was 33 years old, but the year 33 AD is a prime suspect for the year that it happened. Okay, gotcha. All right. Well, I mean, I think those are, like we say, we're trying to steal man stuff. This is, <laughs> I, I tried to throw a fair number of things at you. Uh, are there, are there, is there anything else you'd like to add to, to this exposition? Uh, I think, you know, and we didn't talk about the narratives themselves. Um, we didn't touch on the narratives. I had some notes on the narratives that, um, we probably don't need to get to this time. Such as? Probably just like a Life of Jesus episode. You know, what did he say? What did he do? Oh, well. well what's in the Gospels? Well, sure, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, we spent a lot of time in this episode talking about, are the Gospels reliable? Right. Uh, well, I guess to me, that's... The, the reason why I wanted to do that was because... And it's, it's perfectly it, In a certain sense, it doesn't make sense you know, to talk. It's like, well, yeah. who cares what it says if he's not even real? <laughs> so uh, down the road, we'll have to do a Life of life maybe do a little bit more of a life of Jesus episode and what yeah. he actually taught what, you know, what was he all about? You know, cause right. that kind of plays into the, uh, I think there is the narrative itself plays to its authenticity to a certain hmm. extent. What do you mean by that? So just the story itself is compelling and reasonable enough that, um, it you're, convincing. you're saying like if the, re- if the reader, if the listener reads it, they would say, yeah, this sounds like something again, we'll, for the time being, we'll say yeah, sans, I, sans I would the miracles. Say exploring Jesus's claims about himself, especially in the Jewish, in the context of the Jewish religion. Yeah. Um, his innovations. So you know, the Jewish religion was yeah a lot of different sects. There's a lot of religious innovation in in the Jewish religion in the first century AD. It was a very um, uh, volatile time hmm. for the Jewish people and the Jewish religion. And Jesus is just. Uh, he wasn't the only person who was making waves. Uh, his wave obviously lasted the longest. So kind of exploring who he was in his Jewish context, but in and of itself, I think, is a really good exercise if you're trying to determine for yourself whether it's true or not. So, for example, understanding Second Temple Judaism, mm-hmm. which is that 400 years that we yeah. just talked about, trying to understand what did Jews believe, why did they believe it, what was their cultural context, all of that stuff in and of itself, which is explain, which is which the narrative is kind of undergirding. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the foundation for the narrative. Mm-hmm. And if you understand that stuff and you just read the story itself, I think it's compelling as a historical work um, from that perspective also. Gotcha. Well, let me, in that case, let me, let me summarize what I think I heard uh, and, you know, affirm or, or, or change it as you see fit. But roughly, I think what I, I've heard you say throughout this episode is that, look, Never mind historical Jesus. Think about history as such. What would it take for you to uh, affirm any proposition related to history anyway? Some of those 
some of those um, tests will say would be, well, okay, you know, again, what's the lag between the event and the text that describes it? How many documents do we have describing the same thing? Uh, what's the coherence among them? And it seems like in all of these, the the Gospels hold up. They hold up as historical documents. And so I think roughly what the claim of this episode is, um, or at least a large part of this episode, is that if you want to reject the historicity of the Gospels, then you need to be very careful because you may have accidentally also rejected the historicity of almost any other historical event. Yeah, I mean, and we also talk about we talked about people like Herodotus in this episode. Uh, you know, he reported some really fantastical, weird things, mm-hmm. and he and he said these are real facts or real events or you know, and it's like there's no way. Mm-hmm. And people, mm-hmm. when they come across passages like that, they just ignore them. They're like, oh, it's crazy, right? You know, and but people don't necessarily uh, give the gospels the same thing. I think the only reason the manuscript numbers and all that type of stuff is a big deal to people is because it's our modern Western historical—not uh, historical, scientific view of everything. There has to be some, you know, scientific analytical way to determine whether these are quote unquote true or not. Well, I mean, science aside, frankly, I would feel a lot better if a bunch of witnesses said they saw something than a guy. Yeah, and I would feel better. And, and, and the clo- the closer our, the closer we are to the event. Yeah, and, and you get that like in First Corinthians, when Paul is saying, "Hey, he appeared to five hundred brothers at one time, or whatever." Yeah, yeah, gotcha. All right. Well, uh, anything else to add? I don't think so. I would just like to thank everyone for tuning in this time. Ian, it's been a very fun conversation, and uh, Petra, we'll see you out. This has been another episode of the Steel Creed Show on Earth as it is in heaven. 